Welcome to the Manly Saints Project with me, Hugh Hunter. We live in a world that struggles to understand the virtue of manliness. Our culture doesn't provide young men, or any men for that matter, with a lot of positive male role models. But our Christian tradition can provide such role models. The stories of the saints provide example after example of manly virtue. Telling these stories is what the Manly Saints Project is all about. If you enjoy my work, please consider signing up and supporting me on Substack, or click the link in the show notes to buy me a beer. And if you enjoy the podcast as audio or video, please consider giving me a rating wherever you are. It helps a lot. Now, let's meet this week's Manly Saint. Join me today to meet a wandering emperor and a builder saint. Name, Abramios, Barnabas, and Athanasius. Life, around 925 to 30 to 1001 AD. Status, saint. Feast, July 5th. The great fleet had sailed out of Byzantium headed for the island of Crete, south off the mainland of modern Greece. The Byzantines had sent hundreds of warships, led by the wily general Nikephoros Phokas. The emperor and his general had determined that the time was right to reclaim the island. Crete had slipped from Byzantine control about a hundred years earlier. The island was a casualty of the expansion of a new religion, Islam. The Muslims had burst into history at the worst possible moment, when the Byzantines of the Eastern Roman Empire and their Persian arch-enemies had fought one another to total exhaustion. Before they could recover, Persia had fallen to Islam, and Byzantium had lost much of its territory. The emirs of Crete had turned to piracy, and this posed a serious threat to Byzantine shipping and those living on the mainland. Even the hermits who lived on the holy mountain of Athos, on the sea, a little south of modern Thessaloniki in Greece, had learned to fear the pirates of Crete. And as it happened, one of these hermits was there with the expedition that was sent to end Cretan piracy once and for all. The hermit was there as an advisor, friend, and spiritual father to General Nikephorus Phocas. This was not necessarily a safe position. Byzantium had tried and failed to reconquer Crete many times. But the hermit had confidence in the general. Nikephorus Phocas was a master of war. He had written a book on the ins and outs of guerrilla warfare. Now he slipped his men onto the island, making connections to the Christian resistance that was still there, and moving rapidly to surround and destroy the Muslim forces. The real prize, though, was the capital city, the pirate fortress of Chandax. The hermit also knew a secret, of which few other men were aware. The hermit knew that this was to be Nikephorus Phocas's last 
campaign. After this, Nikephorus' focus would finally have done his duty to the Empire, and he could do the thing he had been yearning to do for years. After this one more task, the general was planning to leave the world behind and join the hermit on the holy mountain as his student. That was the secret, and that was the plan. Although in truth, the future held many twists and turns, and neither the general nor the hermit were destined to escape unscathed. The friendship of the general and the hermit had begun years earlier in Constantinople. Back then, Nikephorus' focus had been a young officer in the imperial army, and the hermit had been known by the name his parents had given him, Abramios. When he first met Nikephorus' focus, Abramius had been a professor, or rather, an ex-professor. Abramius had been a bit of a prodigy, going from student to teacher in his own school fast enough to unsettle professors who had been there for much longer. Their envy had led him to give up his academic career and leave the city. When he returned to Constantinople, Abramius was beginning to discern a calling to the religious life. Abramius had gone to get advice from one of the great holy men of his age, Michael Melanos. As it happened, Michael Melanos was at this time accompanied by his nephew, the young officer, Nikephoros Phocas. As Abramius was figuring out what to do with his life, he was also making an impression on the younger Nikephoros Phocas. The young officer was deeply impressed by Abramios, a learned man who wanted to give up his whole life to be a humble monk. And between the two men, a lasting friendship began to form. In the end, Abramios followed Michael Melanos to a monastery on Mount Kimenas in the southwest of modern Turkey. Abramios lived there for five years, copying out manuscripts and serving in whatever way he was asked. Nikephorus Phocas returned to the military. He went from success to success. In time, the old emperor Constantine VII died, and his son, Romanus II, took the throne. Romanus II lived the life of a hedonist, enjoying the pleasures of the court with his pretty young wife, Theophano. Romanus left the fighting to his generals. And that was good for men like Nikephorus Phocas, who could do what was needed to keep the empire safe. After five years at the monastery, Abramius realized he had hit a wall. Part of the problem was that he had a different ideal of monasticism. He was hoping for something that had the fire of the first monks, the Desert Fathers. Abramius had read about men who sought and found God in the wilderness. Men like St. Anufrius, the wild man, St. Paul, the simple. St. Patermuthius, the robber. Abramius wanted to live like them. The other thing was that Abramius knew that the longer he lived at the monastery, the more likely it was he would end up running it. 
there were already rumblings that Michael was thinking about asking Abramius to step up and take his place as abbot. Abramius didn't feel ready to take on the challenge of helping others. He wanted to seek God in solitude. Indeed, he was so desperate to avoid being in charge of things that at one point he would pretend to be illiterate just to get out of the job. Abramius told Michael Melanus that he felt called to become a hermit. The old abbot understood. As he was leaving, Michael Melanus gave Abramios a gift. Michael removed his monk's cowl and gave it to the younger man. It was a symbol and a blessing. Abramios would wear it for the rest of his life. Abramius was headed to Athos. The mountain is on a spit of land that protrudes out into the Aegean Sea. There were already hermits living scattered on the mountain. Abramius went to Athos to join them there, and to help him sink into anonymity, he used a new name, Barnabas. One person who was not thrown off by the name change was Nicephorus Phocus. He kept in touch. He kept thinking about what Abramios had done. Nicephorus Phocus had been married, but his wife had died very young. Now, he found that he did not want to remarry. He was feeling the gentle tug of another kind of life, starting to wonder whether he had a monastic vocation as well. Of course, that would have to wait. The Empire desperately needed him, as Nikephorus Phocus and his loyal lieutenant, a man called John Simiskes, fought the wars of an empire that was clawing its way back to stability. Life on Athos had its challenges as well. Abramios had hoped that the life of a hermit would feel right. It didn't. He hated it out in the wilderness. Prayer was difficult, and he felt many new temptations. Abramius wondered whether he had misunderstood his vocation. He told God that he would stay on Athos for a year. If things did not get better, he would try to serve God in a different way. He struggled through, and on the day of his one-year anniversary on Athos, a sense of peace washed over Abramios. So this had been a trial he realized. He settled into the life of a hermit. And so it was that Abramius grew in saintliness on Athos, while Nicephorus Phocas grew in power and influence. By the year 961, Nicephorus Phocas was domestic of the East, the general in charge of a vast swathe of territories owned or claimed by Byzantium. It was Nicephorus Phocas whom the emperor tasked with leading the invasion force that would win back Crete, taking tens of thousands of men on 307 warships. Abramius went out to join him. The pirates of Crete hoped for a relief force from other Muslim territories. The trouble was that Nicephorus Phocas was capturing the island so quickly that the relief force was not going to be there in time. Soon, the capital city, the fortress of Chandax, 
was under siege. Nikephoros Phocus's troops smashed the walls with siege engines and sprayed the defenders with a terrifying, secret Byzantine weapon, Greek fire. Soon, Chandax fell, and Nikephoros Phocus's men began to mop up what was left of the emirate and make Crete Christian again. Nikephoros Phocus and Abramios had agreed. This would be the last great work that Nikephoros Phocus needed to complete. He would return to Constantinople to receive his accolades. And once all the pomp and ceremony was over, Nikephoros Phocus would do what he deeply desired. He would give up the influence and the glory and come to live with Abramios as a hermit on Athos. Abramios returned to Athos, waiting for Nikephoros Phocus to join him there. But history was turning in another direction. In Constantinople, the pleasure-loving emperor Romanus II died. His beautiful young wife Theophano was left a widow, but she didn't seem too upset. Some even whispered that she had arranged Romanus's death so that she could rule alone while her sons were still boys. But that wasn't how things worked out. The lords of Byzantium didn't fully trust Theophano, so she became empress with a powerful man set up to rule beside her, the eunuch Joseph Bringas. Theophano hated Bringas and began to think she might be better off with a husband after all. Her eye fell on the triumphant domestic of the East, Nikephorus Phocas. At first, Nikephorus turned the suggestion down. Nikephorus Phocas hated court life and had no interest in marriage. But then, Nikephorus Phocas was approached by his right-hand man, the officer, John Simiskes. Could Nikephorus Phocas afford to turn down the role of emperor? Think of all the good he could do. There were wars to be fought. Nikephorus Phocas could fight them the right way. Nikephorus Phocas knew, too, that the church had become corrupt and stagnant. He could begin to set things right. And, as Nikephorus Phocas listened to the arguments that John Simiskes was making, he realized that he was trapped by his duty. It would be wrong to be able to do good and then not do it. And so, I have to imagine with deep sadness, Nikephorus Phocas married Theophano and became emperor of the Eastern Romans in 963 AD. When Abramias got the news, he could hardly believe it. Disappointed and hurt, Abramias left the place where he had been waiting. He left Athos entirely and moved to another island, Cyprus. He did not want to be found. But it is no easy thing to hide from an emperor. And so in due course, the men of the emperor Nikephorus Phocas tracked down the hermit and respectfully asked him to come see their lord in Constantinople. The emperor wanted to explain to the hermit what had happened. 
We don't know what the two men discussed. We only know what happened next. Historians often guess that the emperor bribed the hermit with the chance of money and power. That seems silly, since Abramios would live in voluntary poverty for the rest of his life, and he had gone to great lengths to avoid money and power. I suspect that what the emperor told Abramios was more or less what John Simitskes had told him. Here was a chance to make a difference, a huge difference. Never mind what Abramios wanted. What was the right thing? And just like Nikephorus focused before him, I suspect that Abramios listened and realized that he too was trapped by his duty. And so it was that Abramios returned to Athens. The emperor had given him a lot of gold and several relics, including a fragment of the true cross. Abramios' task was to build a monastery on Mount Athos and to organize monks the way he thought it ought to be done. Abramios would become known by his monastic name, Athanasius. The original Athanasius had been a great bishop, but I wonder whether it is a coincidence that he was also an exile, for a long time unable to return to the place he wanted to be. The general who had become the emperor led the armies of Byzantium south toward the Holy Land. He continued to be a devastatingly effective war leader. His conquests were so skillful that one Muslim chronicler complained that Nikephorus Focus's men had it too easy. Their campaigns were like vacations. It was like they just strolled through the Middle East, popping up to capture cities before the inhabitants even realized there was a hostile army in the area. Meanwhile, the hermit, who had become an abbot, built a monastery on Athos. His monks would not be soft or coddled. They would be God's athletes, living martyrs, working together and praying for the world in the silence of the mountain. And as Athanasius built up his monastery, young men all over the empire began to feel vocations and come to what would be known as the Great Lavra, the Great Monastery of Athos. They would work and pray although the emperor's generosity did mean that Athanasius could afford some of the latest labor-saving technology, like an ox-powered machine for making bread. For seven years, Athanasius built the monastery, and the armies of the emperor Nikephorus Phocas marched to victory under a fragment of the true cross. But in the capital, trouble was brewing. The marriage of Nikephorus Phocas and Theophano had always been a political fiction, and Nikephorus Phocas still lived a celibate life. But Theophano had a secret lover, and that man was John Simitskes. He had carefully manipulated his old commander into bringing order to the empire. Now the job was done, and John Simitskes had plans of his own he and Theophano began to scheme. And so it was that one night, 
after Nikephoros' focus had been at prayer in the private chapel he had built in the palace. Theophano's servants made sure that his door was left unlocked, and John Simitskes had his old commander murdered in his bed. John Simitskes became emperor. Theophano assumed that they would be married, but she too was betrayed, and John Simitskes had her confined in a convent. On Athos, Athanasius mourned the loss of his friend. The monks of Athos saw the fallen emperor as a martyr. The new emperor, John Simitskes, thought about shutting down the project at Athos. But Athanasius went and spoke to him. Whether it was Athanasius's words or a desire not to add to the outrage over how he had come to power, the emperor decided that it would be prudent to leave the monks alone. This did not mean that it was easy for Athanasius. My favorite story from Athos comes from one of his lowest moments. He was trying to set up the monastery, and nothing was working. The monastery had run out of food. It didn't even have any water. Athanasius walked away, wondering whether he should give up entirely. On the way out, he met a woman. The woman challenged Athanasius as to why he was leaving. He told her the whole sad story. The woman surprised him by asking where his faith was, and Athanasius realized he was speaking with Mary. If he wanted water, she told him, he should just knock his staff on a nearby stone. When he did, a pure spring began to pour out of it. As for food, he should check his storehouses. When he got back, he found that the monastery was fully stocked with food. And that is why, to this day, no monk of the great Lavra of Athos is the steward. There is only an assistant steward. The role of chief steward has been occupied for more than a thousand years. Over the next forty years, Athanasius, who had never wanted to be an abbot, never wanted to be in charge of anything, became a fair and skillful leader. He and his monks followed a strict rule. But Athanasius emerges from tradition as a kind and gentle abbot. We see him reacting with deep compassion when monks sin and try to amend their lives. We find him as a mentor, helping young men who have left home and are finding it difficult to adjust to communal life. And we find him as a pragmatist. In one case, a man was possessed, and Athanasius saw that no easy exorcism was possible. So he kept the man at the monastery. Sometimes he would have demonic outbursts, frightening others, but Athanasius just told the demon to pipe down. And in time, with prayer, the man was freed of the possession. Athanasius had given up his dream of a hermit's life to build something that would last. He did. Today, the holy mountain of Athos is a self-governing region in Greece. It is governed by the monks who live there, scattered throughout twenty monasteries, 
the greatest of which is the monastery built by Athanasius. Athanasius's building has lasted, but it would not be long after Athanasius' death that the Western and Eastern churches would break apart in the Great Schism. The West would conceive of a grand gesture of reconciliation. The plan was to reconquer Jerusalem, return it to the emperor at Constantinople, and heal the rift. It didn't work out that way. Not at all. Over the centuries, the rift grew. But unity is never out of reach, and East and West are closer today than they have been in 900 years. As for Athanasius, he never stopped building. When he was an old man, he was inspecting the site where a church was being set up. The stones of the dome collapsed during the inspection, falling on him and other monks. Athanasius was buried in the rubble, badly hurt but still alive. The monks of Athos worked to try to free their abbot. As they got close, they could hear Athanasius speaking, but he wasn't speaking to them. Athanasius was speaking of a glory that only he could see. But by the time the monks pulled the last of the rubble off him, the old builder was gone. 